Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Yep, there we are. Fast Money starts right now. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, I'm Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are a vested Tim Seymour, Mark Tepper, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. Wall Street is bracing for earnings season. A top technician says there are two stocks that could be big winners. He'll tell us the names he says to buy right now. Plus, Uber officially filing for its IPO moments ago as it gears up for what could be a $100 billion public offering. We will bring you all the latest details. But first, we start off with Disney's Investor Day, which is set to kick off. Any minute, the media giant is widely expected to unveil its streaming service. CEO Bob Iger is set to take the stage at any moment. And this could be a magic moment for Disney. While the stock has been mostly range-bound over the last few years, a slew of analysts on Wall Street have been out with bullish notes in the past few weeks leading up to this event. For more on what we can expect out of Disney, Julia Borson is here with us on set. Julia, great to have you here in person at the NASDAQ. Great to be here, Melissa. Um, obviously, the streaming service is front and center. So what details, what do we expect to know about the streaming service when this is all said? Well, I expect Bob Iger to really focus on the content on this platform. The premium brands showcasing new original shows around Marvel, Star Wars, National Geographic, which they've recently acquired from Fox, Pixar, all of the Disney content will be on there, including The Vault, old content, 500 movies, as many as 7,000 TV episodes from the Disney Vault. And I think that he'll be probably starting off talking about the content, and then there are the big questions. We are hoping that he will announce a price tag. There have been a lot of expectations that we'll get a price. And he said it would be less than Netflix. So that means we're looking like the 5 to $8 range, 6 to $8 range. Um, and then also specific timing. There have been reports that will come out in November. He said before the end of the year, by the end of the year, October, November uh, would make sense in terms of getting it out before the key holiday season. You talk to a lot of analysts. So what are analysts saying in terms of how they assess what the total market could be for this? Well, I think there are two things here. There's the total market, and then there's also the cost. And that's how we're going to determine the, the, the value proposition here. And there's some hope that Disney uh, Disney CFO will give expectations for how this will all impact um, the company's bottom line, the investment in content, the investment also in the technology platform and what that's going to do to earnings guidance going forward. Um, and in terms of the overall market, a lot of analysts are bullish that Disney could very well reach the scale of a Netflix over the next couple of years, over the next 10 years, especially if you look at combining Disney Plus with ESPN Plus as well as Hulu, which Disney owns a majority stake in. Julie, that's what I was just sort of asking you. Do you think Netflix, and you've covered this space for a long time, you've talked to a lot of people, does Netflix have too much of a head start? Well, I think these are really different services. Someone described it to me as Netflix is like basic cable. It's a little bit of something for everyone, for parents, for kids. If you want to get sucked into a show like House of Cards, um, if you're interested in documentaries, there's really something for everyone, but not as much name brand content. They have established some familiar shows, but they're not starting off with stuff that's of the name brand recognition that you have on Disney. So Disney's really a family service. And also, it's going to be must-see if you're a big Star Wars fan. They're going to have a live-action Star Wars show um, that's going to be so high production value. It's going to be the same value as what you would see you know, on a movie theater. And they're going to try to suck people in who are true fans of their, of their brands. 
right. Julia, great to see you. Thank it's you. Great Julia Borson will check in with her uh, a little bit later on as this meeting progresses. Meantime, let's trade Disney and talk about that sentiment change that we have seen in just the past couple of weeks. And Tim, I know you're a shareholder. What, what do you think? Is this warranted? This this really yeah, dramatic change. Look, you, you can make an argument. People have said, well, you know, I get trades in a range from, you know, 95 to 120. What breaks us out of this range? This is what breaks us out of a range. This is arguably, you want that exciting moment. And I realize we knew this moment was coming. But if you listen to the street and if you talk to a lot of analysts, you talk to people that are along the stock, there's definitely a view that I need a hybrid approach to valuing this company. I've got the former multiple, and I'm going to take the same multiple that we start to look at even on a Netflix. So if you think that there's more than room or there is room for more than two SVOD plays, and no question to me that there is, this is what they call the pivot that I think is a major catalyst to the stock. And again, a multiple which trades at a premium to its peer group now has another reason for trading an additional premium to that premium. SVOD meaning streaming, streaming video, video on, on demand. demand. Thanks okay, so thanks. much. So cool. So, so I do believe that there are there, there is a room. The skinny bundle is going to have a lot of other pieces to it. Disney is going to be one of those. It's not going to be a Netflix killer. It's going to be in conjunction with that. But I, I don't believe that the price point is going to work. Really? I don't believe the five to eight is going to work. It's going to be ten. Or it's going to be higher than that. So I think we're why because it's how much they have to spend to make. They said the they'll content, be lower than Netflix, or? but Netflix already raised its prices, so I think they have some some flexibility oh, in price on, on that side. It is, it is positive for them, but I, I still think we're stuck in that trading range. I don't think that this is enough to break us out of that 120, and I wouldn't buy it until it does break out of that trading range. I still need to see some proof that their content strategy is going to be strong. Quite frankly, I'm just not convinced at this point. I'd much rather be in Netflix. I think it's a much better play when it comes to streaming. There's certainly a lot of potential, obviously, with Disney. They do have a, a good legacy library of content, but I'm just really concerned that the new content isn't going to but, but we overwhelm don't know. People. We don't know necessarily. I mean, Netflix right now is in the business. It's, it makes its content as well as right. it buys its content. Disney has a library, so that's akin to the Netflix acquisition of content. Uh, Disney has its own studio, so it also makes its content. Mm -hmm. So why are you so skeptical that it won't be able to compete against Netflix when it has a proven studio I, with certain franchises that have proven to work like a Star Wars? Well, can I say it a little differently? Or, I don't okay. think anybody's content is even close to Disney's. I think their studio is the best. I think, if anything, everyone else has been licensing their old content, and if anything, right, the risk to Disney about, is that they lose that revenue stream I, I don't from disagree. Netflix. I don't disagree, but we're talking, about, we're talking about a streaming game here, and a pure play on streaming is Netflix, so when Disney tries to play streaming, it comes along with a valuation that you're not getting the growth angle that you get with Netflix. So it'll never be able to compete as far as stock price. This is a stock trading show. So you're saying the other parts of Disney X streaming business are not will get weigh the valuation, the valuation down. It's because, not going to get a growth Because the old, old media companies have a lower valuation than Netflix. Of Theme Park has a lower valuation than Netflix, and that, that affects Correct. the overall. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, and we've talked about this, so I'm not breaking any ground here, but I think Disney got a lifeline thrown to them back last summer when sports gambling was legalized, basically. Again, we talked about it last night. There was a $99 stock and and basically sort of it was it was failing in a lot of ways gambling came in i think it saved espn stocks now 18 percent higher than it was but for that move in december which all stocks felt you know this stock had been going basically straight up for the last almost year so i'm with steve i don't think disney needs to compete on price with netflix they need to compete on 
on, a, on an experience with Netflix. I don't think they're going to beat them necessarily, but I don't know if it matters. There probably is room for both. But I also agree with Steve that until you see this north of 120 in a meaningful way, you stay away. So for me, I wait until they report on May 4th. You're making the comparison with Netflix. Yeah. What if you didn't make the comparison with Netflix? What if you just took a look at Disney's business, what it's valued at, and what its offerings are? I mean, uh, I it, think, doesn't, uh, it doesn't have to beat right. Netflix for the stock to go higher. Correct. No, absolutely. I do think there's possibly, if, if this Disney Plus service impresses, I do think the stock could easily pop 15% over the course of a few months thereafter. So there's certainly upside. I think the valuation is incredibly reasonable. But when I try to compare it to Netflix, I'm looking at Netflix's uh, content. And what I see is I see addictive shows where people binge watch. I'm not seeing addictive binge watching kind of shows or content with Disney. I, I just think that I, I, I look at Netflix and I think it I think I think it's completely the opposite. I think Netflix has done a nice job of getting into content, but the, the whole Netflix story is that they've got subs, they've got international growth, and clearly Disney needs to get to that. But Disney's content to me is proven. And I, I would look at the core and say, look, it's seven bucks a share at fifteen times, which I think is cheap for Disney. It's hundred and ten to hundred and fifteen dollar stock alone without any of this. And this is all added to me. Seen, I, I don't, we I don't seen understand why this isn't an add on. The, the point I guess I'm coming from is that... We don't have it because they haven't is, started yet. Is that, I, I, I hear you, and it's not going to be the parabolic growth because it's not a direct streaming play. It's, it's not, you're getting too much noise in there. They make a ton of money in parks, ton of money in media, why? but it's, you're not going to get that noise? valuation. If what? their content strategy was so great, why didn't they roll it out two years ago? Because, right? first of all, they... I'll tell you what, they, they didn't just do this overnight. They started this in 2017. They bought Babtech. Right. They've been slowly working on this strategy. This is a pivot. This is a counterpunch to FANG. And, and actually, if there's any legacy player out there in all the industries that have been disrupted, to me, Disney has the ability to go after and do this. They can do this through theme parks. They can do this through lodging. They can do this through all of their But they're doing all of that and now, studio. and it has... It, what, they're doing all of that now, and Disney is up six or seven percent against against Netflix, up multiples of that year to date. They've gotten a different multiple than Netflix will get, and they'll always get a different multiple than Netflix will get. If you want a growth play, if you want a streaming play, you got to go with Netflix. There's going to be a lot of noise around this, and it could be successful, but I think people are stuck into this trading range where Disney is going to be something that I buy for the kids if you have young kids. Netflix is something that the whole family uses. I, I, I can tell you, you know, I've got two young kids and they would actually throw Netflix out and keep YouTube. I mean, I don't I don't know that Netflix is that cutting well, edge for I kids. think that's a good point. And that I, is all the other competition outside of Netflix and this new Disney streaming platform. I mean, Netflix in its last conference call mentioned what as a competition for their service? Right. Fortnite. Yeah. Fortnite specifically. We're talking about a much broader universe in terms of of, of percentage of time of your eyeballs. Right. Pulled in different directions. It's not just no, that's Netflix. that's fair. I mean, but again, Netflix did such a great job with the land grab over the last decade. I mean, it's it's hard for me to imagine them going away. And I think I don't think Steve is saying this, but I think Tim is alluding to this. It's probably room for both Disney and Netflix. I don't think anybody's. Sub- yeah. I'm not saying it's a zero sum game. I think they both can probably go higher. For me, though, given where the market is, mm-hmm. given in my opinion the potential for the market to have a bit of a sell off, given the fact that Disney has peaked at these levels a number of times, I would rather wait until they report on May 4th. All right. Our next guest says, even as Disney jumps into the streaming wars, Netflix will still reign supreme. Matthew Thornton with SunTrust Robinson Humphrey joins us on the Fast Line. Matthew, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I'm curious, are you listening into this uh, Disney meeting where they're going to unveil all these details, or do you think that Netflix's position is so secure you're not even going to bother? 
Yeah, I mean, let me look. We're going to listen in to see what the details are around pricing and timing. But you know, I think there's a, a couple of key points. And the first one here is these are not exact alternative, um, you know, uh, services. You know, Disney is it's Disney. It's Pixar. It's Marvel. It's Lucas. This is family content. If you look at Netflix and the most searched shows on the Netflix platform, these are predominantly adult drama, comedy, horror, suspense, anime, documentaries, and, of course, lots and lots of international uh, local content. Uh, so, again, it's Stranger Things. It's Orange is the New Black, Black Mirror, Bird Box, uh, The Crown. This, this is not Disney Plus content, so these are not perfectly complementary uh, products here. Right. I, I wonder, um, when you look out further out you know, into the future, Matthew, if you take a look at Netflix, and because it's so many things to so many different people, if eventually it will face greater competition by people who then want to curate their own, so you know, the version of skinny bundles except with streaming services. Why can't I do a Disney and a discovery for all of the documentaries and, and you know, nonfiction shows and, and maybe a BBC and things like that and, and just skip over Netflix altogether. Is that a scenario that you, you're even thinking of or, or concerned about? It, it, it is, but I think what uh, Netflix's friend has been is uh, complexity and confusion. There are so many different products and solutions out there, uh, some of them a little more uh, mainstream, some of them very niche. Netflix all along has just been very simple. Um, I can sign up anytime I want. I can leave anytime I want. It's a massive uh, selection of content. Uh, the pricing is very straightforward. So as long as uh, everything away from Netflix is, is somewhat confusing to the consumer, this benefits Netflix. So, Matthew, we talked about it before that Netflix stated that Fortnite was its, its biggest uh, co- competition. That's what it was worried about the most. What other levers can Netflix uh, pull? We know Disney has other levers. What other Netflix can Netflix pull to sort of be competitive again, once again, in the growth environment? Is it going to be on gaming, where we see some of these gaming stocks have been under pressure? Do you think that they would uh, buy out one of these? Or would there be any M&A in the gaming space? I think gaming is probably a little little further out. I, th- I think some of the different levers that they can pull a little more near-term that are very tangible in our view uh, would range from things like merchandising, which they're already starting with, of course, building consumer products and goods and licensing out brands like Stranger Things for video games, as an example, uh, but also things like product placement. I know a lot of people ask if you know, Netflix is going to get into the game of advertising. Well, it may not be uh, advertising as you and I think about it. It may be product placement within uh, those premium show- shows, and obviously there's you know, uh, hundreds of millions of people on the platform, um, lots of original content, and again, you know, brand sponsors are uh, very eager to get get their products placed in those shows and in front of these mass audiences. Uh, monetizing the box office is something they could always you know elect to do at some point when push comes to shove. Um, and then finally, just licensing their own content. You know, they're doing a little bit of this right now. They're starting to test out putting some of their comedy channels uh, on SiriusXM, for example. But again, if you fast forward five years from now, ten years from now, if Orange is the New Black is being viewed by you know no one on the Netflix platform in the U.S. or the U.K. or pick your market, there's nothing to stop them from relicensing out that content at 100% margin uh, to other networks. Uh, so, so they do have you know quite a few more levers to pull. And the one that we didn't mention as well is pricing. Um, you know, if you look at developing markets where they're still priced at call it ten dollars a month, they can certainly lower that down on mobile-only plans, bring it down to three, four dollars a month uh, to drive you know faster acceleration and, and, and penetration in a market like India, for example. So there are still levers to pull here. Matthew, thanks so much for phoning, and we appreciate it. Thanks Matthew for me. Thornton of SunTrust Robinson Humphrey. All right, um, so let's let's trade it. What do we think? 
What do we think? What do you want to hear today? Well, to me, I want to understand also just how uh, the the forecast can be in terms of cash flow accretive and really what this means to the valuation in the short to medium term. But I I don't think we really know uh, where the adoption is going to be. I think we can make the assumption that a company of this scale and international global uh, platform can compete where we already have Amazon Prime and Netflix doing this. If anyone can compete, Disney absolutely can. So uh, that's what I expect to hear. Guy. Well, I want to hear that ESPN's on solid footing, which it probably is. I mean, remember, there was a time when people thought they would have to sell off ESPN. So that's come totally 180 there. And, you know, you, you want to say, listen, we're not competing with Netflix. We feel there's room for all of us. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So, again, I think Disney's doing everything right. My only problem is the fact that valuation is a bit of a concern in this environment. The fact that the market's run up for the last two and a half, three months unabated. You have to feel there's some pullback. And in the earnings, by the way, it's May 8th, not the 4th. I would be concerned that it's topping out here. All right. And we will be monitoring Disney's investor presentation throughout the hour. We'll bring you all the latest headlines. Plus, Uber officially filing for its IPO moments ago. We'll tell you what the ride-sharing giant said that has shares of Lyft taking a hit in the after-hour session. And later, Wall Street's bracing for earnings season. A top technician says there are two names that are a screaming buy. He'll join us. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Uber officially filing for its IPO in just the last hour. Leslie Pickers back at headquarters with more on the story. Leslie. Hey, Melissa. Uber disclosing its IPO prospectus about an hour ago. The 300-page document is filled with details about the company's web of businesses. You've got ride-sharing, Uber Eats, which is their food delivery service, freight, and other bets. Now, looking at Uber's core platform contribution margin, margin, this is what the company makes after direct expenses for its key businesses that is negative 3% for the fourth quarter. And as you can see from that chart there, it has been steadily declining since the first quarter of 2018. The company says that margin will continue to decline in periods of high investment. So it's clear 2018, a big investment year for them. Adjusted EBITDA, also a metric of profitability, has been declining over 2018, uh, which the company says is a result of the investments in their, quote, other bet segment. That segment largely encompasses freight, which was launched in 2017, as well as what they define fine as new mobility, uh, which includes e-bikes and e-scooters. Now, while these certain metrics tied to profitability have been on the decline, Uber is showcasing gross bookings on its ride-sharing platform more than doubling to $41.5 billion in 2018 from two years prior. Now, its direct comp in that ride-sharing segment, of course, is Lyft, which went public just two weeks ago, and that filing sent Lyft stock down lower in after-hours trading. While it's indisputable that Uber is the number one player in the ride-sharing industry, the two do dispute specific market share numbers. Melissa. All right. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker back at headquarters. Grasso, what do you make of Uber? I, I would bet if you asked anybody about the IPO market, this would be the number one stock that they everyone knows in the, in the whole space. Yeah. They have a lot, lot of things that they can pull from to create revenues. They have eats, they have freight, they, they have scooters, they have bikes. Lyft, you don't get that. I think that this will be successful. And they don't really have a tough act 
to follow with Lyft how this has turned out thus far. So I think it will be successful. I think the bar has been lowered dramatically for them. Okay. It's interesting. I mean, we talked about this. But what, is, what is the retail investor, the guys and gals sitting at home saying when this thing priced 72 bucks, opened yeah. in the 80s? I mean, if you got in this as a retail investor because you've been in a lift, you've heard about lift for the last six months, you know, you're clearly underwater. And you've got to be saying to yourself, this game, in my opinion, or the, it's, it's, it's set up against us. So I don't know how that sets up for Uber going forward. But in terms of what it says for the broader market, I think it's somewhat Troubling. Now, obviously, the broader market's done fine, but you know, if you're at home watching this, say, "Here's my shot to make a couple dollars," and it didn't happen. As a matter of fact, I lost money. The, the question really is, what's the difference between the equity markets and the public markets, and how you know inefficient is one versus the other? Because look, these guys raised 72 billion in in the fall, um, or raised at a at a valuation of 72 billion. Um, and and if you look at also Lyft, I mean, the bottom line is this: these, these two companies have raised more money uh, in the private markets than any two companies in history. Um, so these guys, Uber's raised almost 20 billion. And obviously, if you look at the guys that are in this outside of the insiders, you got SoftBank with about 16.5%, got Benchmark on the West Coast, who seem to have been a part of every major tech IPO that's yep. ever come out. I mean, those guys. So it's the smartest money in the world. Now, are, are they suddenly now just going to run to the hills? Uh, you know, I don't know. But, but the bottom line is very, very smart people have been in this stock for a long time. But it doesn't necessarily mean that this is a company that has no value. And the assumption that you can impute Lyft upon Uber right now also, I think, is probably flawed. Yeah, Mark. So the ride-sharing market's only growing at like 4% per year right now. So I think it's really important that you do have some diversified revenue streams. So that's why I would definitely at this point prefer Uber over Lyft. Plus, Uber's actually making money. Lyft is still losing money hand over fist. For more on Uber and its upcoming IPO, head on over to CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast longer financially viable. We're losing money. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos says the online giant could face multi-billion dollar losses, but it's all part of the master plan. We've got those details. Plus, there's an under-the-radar risk creeping up on Wall Street. And why has no one ever told me about this? Okay, okay, calm down. We'll explain why the big banks could be in trouble. There's much more Fast Money right after this quick break. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customer 
customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Wall Street is bracing as, in, as earnings season kicks into high gear tomorrow. For more on what to expect, let's get to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Hey, Bob. Hi, Melissa. The earnings picture is about to change, and Jamie Dimon may be a big help. The trading community is on edge as J.P. Morgan gets ready to kick off earnings season. That, of course, is tomorrow. Now, analysts have been fretting that earnings have turned negative for the first quarter, now expected to be down 2.5% for the S&P 500. This is the first down quarter since the second quarter of 2016. But early returns indicate analysts may be a little too pessimistic here for a change. Overall, 25 companies have already reported first quarter results. 84% are beating expectations. That's a lot higher than normal. But the more important thing is they're beating by a much wider margin than usual. Seven and a half percentage points they're beating by. That's much more than the typical three and a half percent beat. So why is this happening? It's happening because analysts overreacted in December on concerns over a global slowdown led by China and Europe, and they cut the numbers too much. If companies beat estimates by anything close to seven percentage points, then earnings for the first quarter are likely to be up in the low single digits, not down. No earnings recession. The markets could still, by the way, turn down if economic data from China and Europe continues to decline. But the biggest obstacle the market faces might not be earnings. It's just valuations. Stocks are expensive right now. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob. Thank you, Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. We discussed that before about how the S&P 500 in terms of forward valuation. Is that about the same level as it was before we really pulled back severely last fall? Some sectors have actually exceeded their forward P.E. ratios. How do you feel about valuations here? I, I, like if we're in a I, I hate to always do this, but we're in a two point. 2.4 10-year, and we're in 2016 where people are thinking we're in and out of recession, and they're basically, and there is a Tina approach to this, um, and you get to a place where expectations are really negative, as Bob pointed out. I don't, I, I don't care so much about the valuation, frankly, because the market has been able to price whatever it wants. Mm-hmm. Mark? I agree. I mean, the, the, the whole Tina thing, I mean, where else are you going to put your money to work? You can't make any money in cash. You can't make money in, in bonds. So you have to put it in stocks. As far as earnings season is concerned, uh, what we are really looking for is some good guidance. You know, even if earnings are bad, you can easily get through a bad quarter by providing a very, very positive outlook. Well, as earnings season gets underway, our next guest says there are a few stocks poised to be big winners and one name that's looking like a no-touch. Let's go off the charts with Rob Slimer at Fundstruck Global Advisors. Rob, what are you looking at? Great. Thanks, Melissa. I think it's really important to stay focused on the very long-term perspective of the market. Again, we kind of keep coming back to this point that coming off that 200-week moving average back in 16 and again in in December of 2018, to us, that's a major cycle low. the market has moved back into a lot of resistance here. There's a lot of concern in that 28, 2900, 2900, 3000 level that the market starts to get overbought. This indicator in the bottom, it's the percentage of stocks with rising weekly uh, momentum. So how many stocks are actually turned up and rising? And the key point here, similar to what we saw back in 2016 when the market went through a little bit of a pause after that initial, initial surge, we're seeing the same thing. Now, we highlighted this indicator a couple of weeks ago. We're now starting to get this minor downtick. That's just telling us that 
less than 90% of the stocks. We're starting to see a few of these names start to drift off. So as we get into earnings, the market's relatively high. It's a little bit overbought. We think we get into a lot of churn. We don't think it's a major decline, somewhere in that 3 to 5% uh, 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 sort of decline level. But some of these leaders, some of the software names, some of the service, some of the processors have run a long way. They're still leadership. We still like them long term. But some of these names are starting to pull back a bit. And I think something like a uh, MasterCard, you're already starting to see that relative strength roll over. We saw it in names in Adobe and CRM starting to go sideways. So some of these stocks write some calls against existing positions, take some money off the table going to earnings. We're going to want to buy these names on pullbacks later on. But right up here, right now, we think we're going to get some sort of pullback. And we should bank some of that money going into earnings season. Now, on the other side, names that don't have a lot of momentum in them, that are laggards, names like Electronic Arts, went through this huge bear market in 2018. They're just starting to recover in that sort of 95 to 110 uh, trading range. It's right at the 50-day. I think this is actually a very timely name. Expectations look low from a technical standpoint. And I think you could get this stock back into that 120 level, uh, back where we saw it in 2018, sort of in the middle of that trading range. So I think that's really a timely name. And the last name I want to highlight, and I've got to keep coming back to this stock because I think it's really representative of the broad market cycle. Again, similar to what we saw at the S&P, that big move off the 200-week, the four-year moving average. And again here in 2019, that relative performance started to improve early in 2015 into 16, and we're seeing the same thing here uh, going into 2019 into the second quarter. So around these levels, we're buyers of the stock. We want to be owning the semiconductors, particularly on any near-term weakness. So we're favoring some of these more cyclical names as we move through the balance of 2016. Whatever chop, churn, and consolidation we get in the second quarter, we think it's an opportunity to continue to build exposure to the equity market. Rob, why don't you come on over? Evan will bring the chair in. I think this music might be an upgrade. Generic, awful music. I think it could be an upgrade from the last. An upgrade? I yeah. kind of like it. Growing on uh, me. I mean, God, you're you're not me. easily impressed no, by I'm not show but music. Do you, you want me to be critic. easily impressed? Oh, I appreciate the way you, you, you hold tough there. Anyway, right. banks uh, are kicking off earnings season tomorrow, Rob. So how yes. are we looking? So very weak. Hmm. Long-term relative performance throughout 18 has still been in a downtrend. It has not recovered. But they're very oversold. I think expectations are low. The stocks have gone into consolidations for the last, call it, six weeks or so. Similar to what many of the energy names look like. And I think they could pop to the upside. I think it's going to take time for those stocks to rebuild their leadership. I think that's a second half story. So, Rob, to the same thing about popping to the upside, I, I, I noticed a similar factor with energy names. We've, we've seen the uh, you know, oil yes. complex move higher, but a lot of the subsector has sort of been you know, sideways, kind colors. of grind. Exactly. Do you see the same ability for energy to pop? I do. The only comment or hedge I would have here is that oil's already run 60, 64. It's a big band of resistance right around its 200-week moving average. I think oil's going to come back a little bit, similar to what we see in the market. So I think it might be tough for those stocks to actually drive to the upside. If you push me on it, long, short, if I had to be there, I'd be long energy, I'd be long banks into earnings. I think they're pretty oversold. Rob, this, uh, I'm sorry, this tug of war, the S&P 500, the last couple of weeks at these levels, does that favor the bulls or the bears, in your opinion? I think in the near term, the market's starting to stall out. I'd be taking capital off the table. That weekly chart we just saw, the moment, that momentum indicator, it's a pretty good way of getting a sense of the, of the breadth in the market. It's starting to stall. I think, I think the market starts to pause out here. I think we've got about a quarter of sideways chop. So we like MasterCard, but we own Visa. I um, think there's a better debit card presence there, so it should be able to weather the storm a little better in the event of a, an economic downturn. How do you feel about Visa? I think they're basically the same chart, yeah. more or less, right? IT process, or, or processors, financial processors, PayPal, MasterCard, 
all in established uptrends, cloud stocks, software stocks. There's got to be great fundamentals behind those names for those stocks to have ripped so far. I just think the positioning in a lot of those names is probably a little bit overdone. You get a little bit of a pullback. I'd be adding to those stocks and pullbacks. Thank you, Rob. Good to see you. you. Rob Slimer of Fundstrat. So he takes some money off before earnings season. And I've been thinking that for a long time, yeah. so it's been wrong. So, but I agree. And, you know, stocks have to prove themselves. April 24th, you got Caterpillar and Boeing. It's going to be a huge day, so I'd really like to see what they say on that day. All right. And as banks gear up for earnings, there's one under-the-radar risk that could be lurking beneath the surface. I'll tell you what that is. Plus, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos says get ready for multi-billion dollar failures from the online giants as the company grows. But should you buy the stock anyway, the traders will weigh in. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos making a splash at the company's annual letter to shareholders where he warned investors that there could be some big failures on the horizon, writing, Amazon will be experimenting at the right scale for a company of our size if we occasionally have multi-billion dollar failures. Of course, we won't undertake such experiments cavalierly. We will work hard to make them good bets, but not all good bets will ultimately pay out. So is Amazon worth this risk? Uh, is there any other company out there that could get away with making multi-billion dollar bets that could fail? There probably are. But I, I mean, I think Amazon uh, can definitely get away with it. In fact, I, I actually I love the comment. W- what it says to me is that Amazon is going to continue to invest. They're going to continue to innovate. They're going to continue to roll out new products and services. And you want to hear this from the CEO of a company. You're going to try new things and not everything's going to work. You might step up to the plate five times, you strike out once and you get four great hits. And that is what leads to companies being very successful. When a company or a CEO tells you to be worried, you should probably be worried. I think that he's signaling something here that you should probably take the lead, sell the stock. He's had the ability to turn on the spigot whenever he wants. That you should, oh, because he's going to spend a whole bunch of money. He's going to spend a whole bunch of money. And you don't want to be there when he's doing that. You know, he's being given, so to start, to, to, comment on how you started it off. Mm -hmm. No one else could get away with what Jeff gets away with, with Amazon. Having said that, he has the ability to turn on earnings when he wants to turn on earnings, shut them off when he wants to shut them off. And I think we've grown accustomed to Amazon showing some signs of life, showing some profits. And now he's telling you, all but telling you, there's going to be no profits there because he's going to be working on these growthier things. I would say you should probably take profits while you still have them in Amazon. Speaking of Amazon, coming up on Mad Money, Kramer is interviewing Macy's CEO about Jeff Bezos' challenge to retailers about matching its minimum wage. Find out what he said right at the top of the hour. Plus, the big banks kicking off earnings season tomorrow. There is one, though, under-the-radar risk to the group that could lead to trouble ahead. We will explain much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Well, the markets and economy have climbed back from the financial crisis in the last decade. So have consumer credit scores. Analysts say it's become much easier to get a higher score, credit score, than it was a decade ago. And because the bar is lower, we've seen a rising number of missed payments by borrowers. Our next guest says the banks could be the ones to ultimately pay the price. Let's bring in Chris Doritis, Deputy Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. Chris, great to have you with us. Uh, Thank you so much. So why do you think these scores, I mean, the number of people, I believe, with more than 700 has, has grown dramatically over the past few years. Why are these scores inflated, in your view? Yeah, that, that's right. So the uh, average credit score has risen over the last uh, 10 years, right? We've gone from a, a cyclical low around a 686 uh, FICO score back in 2009 to a 704 
FICO score uh, average uh, today. So it's about a 20-point swing. And it's great that people are paying their bills and, and getting higher scores. But that's also a function of the economy overall, right? We have a, a strong labor market. Wages are growing. So it's a lot easier to have a higher credit score than it used to be. So uh, it's important to, to think about uh, the meaning of those credit scores. So a 700 credit score today is just under average. But a 700 credit score back in the height of the recession, well, actually, that was pretty good. It was actually better than average. So the relative risks have shifted. So why? So explain to me why this is a bad yeah. thing or why this could be masking some sort of hidden risk for the banks or for credit card issuers. Yeah, so the, the issue is that, the, again, that meaning, the meaning of the score um, may be quite different today versus what it was. It's particularly true at the lower end of the spectrum, right? If you're thinking about subprime borrowers, uh, back in 2009, with unemployment going through the roof and house prices falling through the floor, it's pretty easy uh, to miss some payments and get a low score, right? If you're uh, still a subprime borrower today, the score less than 620, for example, well, that's probably an indication of some real risk, right? Because labor market is strong, you should have an easier time to, uh, to make uh, your payments that the average household is able to, so it probably indicates there's some real risk if you have that lower credit score today. So a lender or a bank with uh, a portfolio that's really skewed towards the subprime, I think that's something to at least keep an eye on. It's not saying there's going to be a, loss, a, a, mm -hmm. a massive loss, but it's certainly a, a higher risk. So you're not sounding an alarm right now, Chris, but when you take a look uh, out, what are some of the factors that you'd be watching to say, you know what, this could be a problem at this point? I mean, is it uh, the economy turns a little bit, do, when interest rates go higher, maybe those payments are harder to make? I mean, what are some of the key factors you're watching? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it is the economy, right? And we know that the uh, worst loans are made in the best of times, right? So if this is the best of times for consumers when it comes to the labor market, this is the time to be especially uh, vigilant. If we get some weakness, right, if unemployment starts to tick up, people start losing some jobs, you will see some stress on households who are on the edge, and you will see losses start to increase. So definitely uh, any type of uh, labor market weakness is something to watch out for. Interest rates, as you put it, um, certainly a risk for some of the revolving products that are out there. It's also important, though, to think about uh, the different product categories, right? So we're not so worried about mortgages, given tight lending standards, more worried about personal loans, auto loans, some of the credit card portfolios out there that have gone a little uh, deeper into the, into the credit spectrum. Those are the things to worry about or the portfolios to worry about. All right, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Chris Doritis of Moody's Analytics. Should we be concerned? I mean, maybe not right now, not, maybe not right at this moment in time, but a little bit farther down the line. Well, what, what would concern me is the following. Uh, the expectation that the banks have the best balance, or the understanding that the bank's balance sheets have never looked this good and that actually credit you know, standards have never been more stringent, et cetera, et cetera, has people probably so in some sense of complacency. Credit cycles can turn quickly, and we saw that in the fourth quarter. We saw that in December. Having said all that, I brought this up. I actually think high yield, first of all, is going to fresh highs here because ultimately volatility is going lower and lower, and right now there really is zero stress out there on credit. Yeah, quickly, see, I would broaden it out and say my concern would be, listen, Wall Street absolutely made mistakes in 08, 09, but don't think that Main Street wasn't complicit in some ways, and my concern would be now that credit scores are easier to get, people fall into the same trap they did a decade or so ago. That would be my main concern. You can borrow a lot of money right now because your credit score is good, and interest rates are low right now. So take it as much doesn't as you can. doesn't sound like it's as big a problem, though. It doesn't uh, sound right. like it's as big a problem. doesn't sound like, and, and to Tim's point, their balance sheets are fortress-like now. So For, for the I big banks. But how about the credit card yeah. issuers? 
Discovery Financial, Capital One Financial. I mean, mm-hmm. like these guys are a little bit more exposed to some of these C- lower. Certainly, end, some of the uh, regional banks. To be clear, I mean, I think banks, they, yeah. they are very credit sensitive. And and if you start to see mortgage rates kick back higher, uh, you know, and we've even seen that with those banks. I think if anything, they've been benefiting in the last month and a half. All right. Well, financials have lagged the market so far this year, but with earnings season kicking off tomorrow, some traders think the big banks could be primed for a move higher. Mike Coe's in San Francisco with the options action. Hey, Mike. Hi there. So it doesn't seem like the traders in XLF options are too concerned about the things that our prior guest just talked about. We saw calls outpace puts by about three to one in the XLF. And the most active options that we saw were the April 27 calls. When I was looking at these earlier today, over 40,000 of them had traded for about 15 cents. And by the end of the day, over 50,000 of them had traded. Those are bullish bets that XLF could finish next week, which obviously is a day shorter than it normally would be. So next Thursday, two and a half percent higher. And the thing I would also point out, we've got about 56 percent of the constituents of XLF are going to be reporting their earnings by weight by the end of next week. And we can see that price embedded in the options because about two thirds of all of the move that the options market is implying for the financial sector overall over the course of the next month looks like the options market thinks that all of that's going to happen within the next seven days. So right now, maybe because Financials are relatively cheap, 13 times earnings overall. They're poised possibly for a move higher. All right, Mike, thank you. Mike Coe with the Options Action. For more Options Action, full shows tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, Tilray up in smoke while the other pot stocks going parabolic this year. What is wrong with the pot stock, and is this a warning sign for more trouble ahead in the space? More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Rite Aid joining the cannabis craze as a pharmacy will join Walgreens and CVS start selling CBD products. But former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb warned against the rise of CBD products today on Power Lunch. There might be other neurological diseases that could be treated with CBD oil, but a lot of the uses that we're seeing in these these sort of consumer products that are being put forward right now, they don't look very credible. There's certainly no science to support it um, that would rise to the you know level of FDA satisfaction. Despite the concern, pot stocks still flying high this year with the exception of one big name. That would be Tilray, down 24% this year, while other big pot companies like Canopy, Kronos, Aurora are soaring. So what's up with Tilray? Could it be signaling trouble for the others? Our cannabis king, Tim Seymour, the vested one uh, at the plasma. Tim. This is a hot story. I thought I'd put on a vest today. And so, Mel, you know, look, I want to be clear. You know, some of Tilray's problems are a function of Tilray's success. In terms of their strategy, I just want to say, I think I like the strategy. I like the deal they did with JV, the JV with Bud. I like the strategy with Sandoz. I like the deal in hemp with, with uh, Manitoba. Um, the, the, the NASDAQ listing was ultimately what probably led you to this issue. And this is the problem. The valuation is what matters. And frankly, this stock is just still so expensive after 83% off the blow off top. That wasn't even a fair price, but down 28% year to date, a significant outperform the sector. Right now, this is trading at 50 times 2019 sales. This is ridiculous. Even relative to itself, it's very expensive. Relative to its peer group, I should say, it's very expensive. And again, let's talk about U.S. versus Canada. Part of the problem here is just that the Canadian LPs, which came out first, clearly Canada was the place to go raise money. But now relative to the U.S. market, there's a relative value trade going on right now. U.S. MSOs, the multi-state operators, relative to their Canadian peers, trade at one half 2020 EBITDA. So if you look at what's going on, meanwhile, the market size, the addressable market in Canada, at best, you could say is about $12.5 billion. You look at 2020. Uh, you can make an argument that California is bigger than that now. 
The biggest issue I actually think right now is just the capital markets dynamic. It's a function of two things. One is just that the free float got so squeezed that when this valuation got so high, a lot of people chased to see if they could short the stock, do whatever, it squeezed the stock higher. Bottom line is when this stock became unlocked on Jan 15, you saw an enormous amount of selling. Go check it out, folks. And I tell you, you should do this with all cannabis stocks. If you look at the filings, as of starting after Jan 15th, you saw the biggest officers of the company, including CEO Brendan Shanahan, sold $20 million of stock, roughly $25 million of stock within the first few weeks he could. The CFO, the chief business officer, this is part of the problem. So uh, I'm just going to tell you that that's one of the big issues with a lot of cannabis companies. And so here are the charts. Just want to show you a couple things. Obviously, this is that blow off top here. Not you know any big surprise, but ultimately, really what's been happening is the stock was flatlining. Excuse me, I got the wrong thing here. Let me draw that. It was flatlining until we really ticked down here as we started to see some of these uh, IPO lockups begin to fall off. And I just want to show you a relative value chart of Tilray versus Canopy. You can make an argument that Canopy is really the proxy play for the industry. I would, if I was going to buy one stock probably right now, that would be it, although uh, that too is expensive. But look here, this is really since the beginning of the year. What has this outperformance been all about? Again, this is your lockup point, and here's the point where the entire rest of the sector, including the Canadian LPs, have traded higher all year. And that's really something that Tilray ultimately has not taken part in. And frankly, I think in the short run, the stock is still expensive. There are better places to play. And I still think that there's a lot of money locked up in this stock that actually would like to cash out. So, Tim, I, I own uh, a couple of these names. I own Kronos. I own Canopy. I sold them recently. They're both down 5 and 10%. What is the next catalyst? When do, when do you get back in here? Because even though Tilray has been lagging, uh, the whole space has been under pressure lately. What is the next catalyst that makes the whole group rise. I think legislative, again, people waiting for the state, the States Act and the banks. Ultimately, I think you've got a dynamic here. Also, if you think about strategics and guys that could be getting involved in the sector, look for consolidation amongst the U.S. MSOs. I think that is coming, and I think that is something that will drive more interest back into these names. But nothing's cheap right now. Tim, is there a price at which Tilray actually becomes attractive in your eyes? That's a tough question. I, I just want to point out that I think it's a company that's very well positioned globally. They've got an international expansion strategy. I think it's well run. Uh, I don't like the valuation here. All right. Thanks, Tim, for that. Thanks. Tim Seymour. Up next, Final Trade. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's get a check back on the Disney Investor Day. CEO Bob Iger took the stage earlier this hour. So far, we've heard Iger say he plans to create great content and distribute it in innovative ways with its Disney Plus streaming service. The company also said it will likely add a bundle option of Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu at a discounted price. So it wants to get more dollars than just a... the Disney service. No, it's it's fine. Again, I listen, I don't run Disney, obviously, for good reason, but I don't think he has to compete on price. I think, you know, price is the last thing he has to compete on. It's compete on content and compete on the platform itself. But if they're going to compete on price, they'll probably do quite well. Yeah. What else do you want to hear in relationship to that bundle offer? Well, I, I, I'd be curious to hear exactly what, what segments they're really going after, yeah. too, because we, we know what's there, and everyone's talked about, at least to the extent that Netflix has gone after a particular kind of an audience with a very specific offer. That's interesting. I think at $15.99, Netflix is actually not a rounding error. It's expensive. All right. Well, head on over to CNBC.com for additional coverage as the presentation continues. And you won't want to miss David Faber's interview with Disney CEO Bob Iger. That's tomorrow on Squawk on the Street. Time for the final trade. Tim. Yeah, one of the charts that was brought up before, or I think it was, anyway, Electronic Arts, very important in May. But look, this is a company on valuation I think has now gotten kind of interesting. And I think they're starting to break through with their pipeline again. Check out EA. It's in the game. Mark Tepper. 
Despite those inflated credit scores, I like American Express. It is a good play on the strong consumer. Steve Grasso. We talked about it earlier with Rob, our good friend Rob. Mm. J.P. Morgan, the banks are oversold. J.P. Morgan, I believe, is oversold. Look for a pop in the banks, J.P. Morgan. Guy? You know, we didn't mention it, but Tim looks just the sartorial. He's got two pockets on the no, front that you probably can't yeah. see, but it's fine to too. I'm, in, I'm invested Anyway. Samant- you thought I forgot. I didn't forget. Symantec <laughs> just slowly breaking out to the upside. Hurry up. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money starts right now. <laughs> People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.